This is episode 50, The Matrix Revolutions, from 2003. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. With us today we have our Matrix expert, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. And everything that has a beginning has an end, and this (laughs) is the end of our Matrix podcasts. I know, I'm very sad. It's kind of amazing to me that this is, of the three movies, the shortest runtime. Yeah, yeah. It's two Matrix. hours, like, on the nose. It yeah. doesn't feel like the shortest movie. No, it feels like the longest. <laughs> it does. So the movie really should be about an hour and 58 minutes. There's way not enough going on. Mostly it's because of the battle scenes in Zion, which I, I think is like, whenever I hear criticism of revolutions, the people that really hate it, that's why they hate it, is there's not enough happening inside the Matrix, and there's too much happening outside of the Matrix, And I don't think anybody is entirely overwhelmed by success of the apocalyptic battle that takes place on Zion. Just in terms of, you know, they try and go Peter Jackson and they fall about, you know, five feet too short. Especially since, ultimately, that battle doesn't really mean anything. Like, Neo stops the battle from afar anyway. There's no resolution there. They just stop fighting. I don't don't think it doesn't mean anything. If they don't fight off the initial round of Sentinels and they all die and it's all worthless... So it's not totally meaningless, it's just that the climax of it is unexpected. I haven't seen this in a, in a, in a number of years until I just rewatched it, and the first time I watched it, I was really sort of preoccupied with the interesting stuff that I sort of overlooked just how long <laughs> and unsuccessful the battle scenes are, but it really does weigh it down, which is really unfortunate, because honestly, like, had this been a... 45 minutes shorter movie, I think it would have been really good. Or maybe had they just reworked, reloaded a little bit to save some of the exposition stuff for Revolutions and, and cut back on the battle scenes. But it's it's unfortunate because the Wachowskis showed themselves over the first couple of movies to be really good at these great set pieces so long as they're sort of narrowly focused, right? As long as it's like about just a couple people, they're great at that. When it gets to be this huge Lord of the Rings epic battle it's too chaotic visually just doesn't quite come together and that's a, that's a shame because i've a never really otherwise. had an issue with this big zion battle until we watched it for this because it just doesn't directly relate to what we're talking about either in a religion point of view really or in the keanu point of view i have really never had a problem with it before but here, I was just like, oh, let's, like, let's just get through because there's, there's no notes to be taken. Really. I mean, there's a couple, like I was talking about this to Mike yesterday, and there's a couple things that you might want to talk about here. But like for the most part, it's just, all right, let's just get to the bigger stuff that we know is coming. Let's get back to Keanu. Let's just get out of here, please. Yeah, for me, I'm just not really invested in the characters in Zion. Like I, I thought they did a good job of setting them up, but we haven't spent enough time with Z, for instance, you know, like Link's wife, to really care about you know, whether she lives or dies, I feel. A lot of those characters. What's kind of interesting to me is more or less the race to Zion in the ship. Like, I think that's cool. And if they just kept that and then when they arrive at Zion, they blow the EMP. There's some interesting visuals going on down there, like the locust metaphor, right? Like the descending upon Zion and like sort of a swarm and they form like a big giant hand at one point. And I was thinking, oh, it's like, hand of God type stuff, like exposing its wrath. So like, there's some interesting visuals depicting hell on earth and the apocalypse and stuff, but I just don't feel the weight of it. And I think some of the effects haven't really 
aged well either. They overreach a bit with all those predating Iron Man mech type suits, you know, that, that super anime type of suit that they're wearing. You know, I guess Avatar brought that back a couple of years later. But at one point, it just becomes like a giant blur to me. I am wondering more like, you know, what's going on in the Matrix? What's up with Neo? I would not mind just seeing him meditating, having visions or things of that nature. So it did weigh it down for me this time, the, the Zion stuff. I also never really had an issue with it, but watching it for certain things this time, I was like, let's just get through this. I agree. And the problem with it, in a way, I don't know where you would put it to make it better, but it's right in the middle of the movie. And so we sort of pick up some steam, we get some stuff to talk about in the beginning, and then like as soon as the ball kind of gets rolling, it's just like, well, here's where we are for 40 minutes. And then at the end, we sort of close on a high note. Like I don't know if you intercut it a little bit more with the ship that Neo and Trinity are on, or if there's other stuff going on that you add in, but there are long stretches where we're just in that battle, and it's just, oh, okay. Yeah, the battle needs to happen because it's the apocalypse, right? It's the it's it's the Book of Revelation battle sort of retold, and certainly it's an, it's a really important set piece. I think the, the problem that they had was that when you try and tell a story of this scope over the course of three movies, and you have so much that you want to get in there, that you are inevitably going to run into basically a pacing wall. It's going to happen where you're going to have to basically spend a lot of time doing something that maybe you don't necessarily want to do because essentially you've written yourself into a corner. So I think that's basically what's happening here. It would be better if that whole sequence were interspersed with other stuff, but there's nothing else to say. You know what I mean? Like there isn't other stuff. They've already blown the other stuff on the first two movies and you really just can't work them in some... It just doesn't, you know, you can't cut that up. It just is what it is. It goes on too long because as you say, the movie is two hours. It needs to be at least two hours, right? They can't just make it an hour and a half movie. That would have just pissed people off. So it just sort of seems like it was inevitable. And I think one of the problems is that you guys kind of alluded to, we talked about this earlier, but I'd forgotten how big of a role the kid plays in that battle and that story. And we talked about how it seems like that there was a lot of story about him that maybe was left behind on the cutting room floor. I kind of feel like maybe that was part of the problem is that if we'd known a little bit more about him, if that story was a little bit more fleshed out, then the trajectory of what happens to him and his anchoring of our sort of emotional connection to that battle would have been a lot more effective. But I think that may have been part of the issue is that they just didn't develop that that character enough. And maybe they had intended to, but for time purposes, didn't get around to it. That's the way it feels. Because anyway. you have to imagine most people who saw this movie didn't see the Animatrix. And so all they know about <laughs> this kid was just that he loves Neo. Right. And that he gave him the spoon. You know if they like even remember all... who he is, like, you know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> you remember from several months ago, like, who was that guy with the, like, whatever. I, I didn't remember, so. He's partially the, the new audience surrogate to introduce us to Zion a little. Like, I feel like that that's what they should have done with him, but they, again, like, sort of dropped the ball in fleshing him out. Because, like, if you are just, you know, new to this and you haven't seen the Animatrix, why else introduce him if he's not going to be pivotal? So we've talked about why everybody hates the movie. <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff here, too. So, there is. So, I mean, yeah, let's, let's, let's focus so, on what's awesome. The most important first thing that happens is that at the end of the last movie, Keanu Neo is in sort of like a coma. They don't really know what happens, but he blows up those machines in the real world and passes out. And he's laying on the table across from Bane, who is Smith, and they're both unconscious. 
And so this movie opens up with them trying to figure out where Neo is because the doctor or the nurse or whoever that is says, I've seen brainwaves like this. I see them all the time. They're when people are jacked into the Matrix. They're looking around the Matrix. They don't see Neo. They don't know what's going on. And then that's when we cut to the subway station, Mobile Ave, a clever anagram of Limbo, where he (laughs) runs into Sati and he runs into the man who was arrested at the Merovingian's restaurant in Reloaded. I'm sure John can go into this a little bit more, but in terms of religion, Limbo is, at least in the Catholic sense, right? It's where you go between the time you die and the time you go to heaven. And here, it's not necessarily between life and death. It's more just a place between worlds, right? Yeah, and the train driver is Charon from Greek myth. So Charon is the ferry driver who drives you from... Basically, he lives in Limbo. He lives in the space between the world of the living and the underworld. I don't even know where here is. This place is nowhere. It is between your world and our world. Who's the train man? He works for the Frenchman. Why did I know you were going to say that? The Frenchman does not forget, and he does not forgive. You know him? I know only what I need to know. I know that if you want to take something from our world into your world that does not belong there, you must go to the Frenchman. Who are you? He is a friend. Mama. I know you. So that's what they wanted. I need to get back. I'll pay you whatever you want. Oh. One way or another, I'm getting on this train. Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to stay right here until the Merovingian says different. If I know him, you're going to be here for a long, long time. I don't want to hurt you. You don't get it. I built this place. Down here, I make the rules. Down here, I make the threats. So that concept is the idea that there is a a kind of a third space, right, between the material world and the Matrix. And that the daughter, Sati, of the two computer programs comes from a Hindu word. Sati is the now illegal practice of widow burning, <laughs> which is which is kind of disturbing. Basically, in ancient Hindu culture, when a husband died, the widow of that husband would be burnt on a funeral pyre. I believe alive. I'm not really quite sure. But the, the, the idea is... No, this... what I, the research that I said looked like alive, but it also made it look like more of like a voluntary thing. Right. Is it, was it forced? It seemed like she was so overcome by grief that as they burned his body, she would just jump on there and join him. I, I don't really... Yeah, I don't really know. I think the word itself is a word that basically means sacrifice. So I think the idea basically is that because they're giving their daughter to, you know, they're sort of sacrificing themselves so their daughter can live and be taken to the underworld by Charon. So there's elements of, you know, the Hindu and the Greek going on here. But again, this is part of the bigger idea of kind of passing on from one tradition to the next as revolutions then tackles more directly a Christian narrative as it moves away from the Greek narrative. So the last we see really of the Greek narrative is with the Merovingian, which is a very classic kind of Hades sort of a scene. But the idea of making a deal, right, as the parents do, like with Hades, with the Merovingian, is a very, that's a very traditional, if someone survives, then you've got to sacrifice something. Again, it's very similar to the story of Orpheus, when Orpheus goes to the underworld to retrieve Eurydice, but then fails in his part of the negotiation, so he can never go back there. So I, I think in, in a lot of ways, it basically is meant to be a it's a cool way of sort of talking about the the difference between the spaces of the Matrix, but it also is 
one of the ways where it talks about the transition from one set of religious ideas to the other, which is really what the third movie really is all about, is moving into a new kind of a reality, a new kind of space, and a new arrangement. So I have a question about the train man, which is not necessarily a question about religion or spirituality or anything like that. It's more of a movie question. They talk about how the train man smuggles programs in and out of the Matrix. Is he just bringing them to another realm of consciousness like where are they going to well right and that's the question (laughs) it's like where are they going to like where is that extra space and so i think the idea of seeing limbo as this sort of defined space that doesn't belong to either one of the two spaces that we know about is basically a way of the wachowskis presenting the idea that there is some malleability to these different versions of reality but they also don't have to show you too much of that because they're just going to limit to this one train stop, basically. But just gives you an idea that, yes, there are pockets of reality that are not the two realities that we've known so far, which kind of opens up the floodgates a little bit to new possibilities of what is really going on. And we kind of alluded to it when we were talking about Reloaded, which is that one of the developing ideas is that Morpheus is wrong when he says that this is the real world, right? It's not the real world, it's just a different world. And there is no such thing as a fundamentally real world. There's just different versions of it. And we move closer to that idea throughout this movie as well, I think, especially towards the end. I also think this serves really well just thematically as the idea that humans are trying to be free from the Matrix and programs are hiding in the Matrix from the real world. And we also learned from Sati's dad that if you don't have a purpose as a program or as a machine, like you get deleted. There is like this crazy robot society going on out there with sort of like a revolt going on too, in a way. There are programs and even as bad as the Merovingian seems, like he is much more comfortable living in iterations of the Matrix than he is living out in a solid form you know, somewhere out in the real world in that society. So I just think that's um, a really interesting development that keeps happening across the movies. And like it continues, it's a theme sort of continuing on from the last one. Like we meet her, uh, Sati's mom, who's Kamala, she's an actual programmer. And I thought that was interesting. I didn't catch that previously. I said in the first Matrix podcast, like the Wachowskis just are really good at blending theology or the ideas from religion and theology with actually progressing the story and, and cool sort of sci-fi ideas that this is there are these constructs that are attached to the matrix but not part of it and it's just really interesting how they keep developing the world alongside talking about the ideas they want to like everything seems to find a place to fit pretty well yeah i, I think that's right and and one of the things that i in re-watching it this time i kind of came to think is that is what the Wachowski is really trying to do here in some way is develop a kind of religion M theory where kind of everything works right? where like all the different all the myriad religious ideas and philosophies again I talked about them being put in a blender and what comes out of the blender is actually pretty effective but in the same way that scientists are looking for a, a theory that allows both Newtonian physics and string theory to work within the same under the same umbrella we call that M theory I think what the Wachowskis are in, in some way taking that M theory idea and saying like can that be applied to religion in some way is there some consistency is there some sort of model that we can make where all these disparate religious ideas and themes all kind of make sense in unison together and trying to do that while also tackling more obscure fringe 
religious ideas like Gnosticism, it's pretty bold. <laughs> like I don't see too many people wanting to take that on. But yeah, it, it works out pretty nicely in the end. And I think the, the, the structuring of it and the kind of chronology, as we talked about before, where like the earlier religions really are more to do with the first Matrix and then the kind of move from the traditional Temple Judaism into Christianity is sort of what is represented by the end of the third movie. There's, there's, a, there's a template there that works. But yeah, I think that's spot on. So maybe the next trilogy can go even further and be about, like, Scientology. Well, that's... I don't think Scientology, but, like, if they want to carry on this basic structure, there's lots to work with. There's, there's been a lot of religious and theological development over the last 2,000 years. They basically deal with about 2,000 years of theology in the first three movies. So definitely they could carry on that theme and that could be the kind of the the, the ligament that sort of connects everything. But it would be very different. I can't even fathom what it is, like how that would work and how they would make it fit together. But I, I don't doubt that they could and I think it could be very interesting. I just don't know if there would be a great audience for it. I hope we'll see. If they made more movies, a lot of people would go see it just because it's another Matrix movie, but like the real diehards are going to be the ones who still like this movie, and I think that they would, you know, I don't know who it would be for, but I think there'd still be an audience of people who love it just because it's weird and bold and covers the same kind of things and has the same kind of cool action and all that sort of stuff. That uh, One thing that I read was that from the in terms of the box office, from the first week to the second week, ticket sales dropped off by 66%. It was like word got out that like, hey, this wasn't as good as the first two, or this might not be the kind of movie that you want to see. But I feel like it's those people who went on the second weekend and beyond, they're the people that no matter what they would choose to do if they did more movies, they might not necessarily love it as much as the first three, but they would be on board and at least open to the possibility of like, let's see what other stories there are to be told. Yeah, and I think there's been a kind of a um, a cult audience that's built up over the last 15 years or so of people like teenagers who weren't weren't alive when the first movies came out who would be compelled. And if you really just take it uh, as a very kind of a new thing, if you don't go in assuming it needs to be the same kind of cool special effectsy martial arts movie, then I think there's a lot of stuff that you could do with it that would find an audience and would be really interesting. But I don't know if movie studios are necessarily enthusiastic about that idea, and I'm not sure how much clout the Wachowskis have at this point in terms of getting big budgets to make big epic movies, considering their last couple attempts. Netflix gave them enough money to make Sense8, which is crazy high budget, and then they greenlit it for a second season. So I feel like Netflix, especially in its still, you know, maybe reckless spending of just, let's get more content, I feel like Netflix could say, we've already worked with them, let's give them either, you know, three movies or a movie or a miniseries. I agree that I don't know if this would necessarily be in theaters, but I think that as the way that we watch stuff changes, it would be more appropriate for like, like this would also be like a huge get for Netflix. Be like, hey, we've got more Matrix stuff, like official like canon Matrix on our service. If you're the one person who doesn't subscribe to Netflix, come over and watch this. Yeah, I think, and I think it would be a, there's a big difference between there's going to be a new Matrix movie, you got to pay 12 bucks to see it, and the enthusiasm that would garner, whereas if Netflix was like, we're doing a Matrix TV show. Like, the difference in terms of how that would be received, I think, is enormous, right? That people would be like, uh, you know, do I have to go drag myself to movie theater to see another Matrix movie? Whereas if someone said to them, no, we're like, 
bringing it to your living room and it's going to be a whole TV show, I think that would immediately generate a lot more excitement. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's a much better venue for it. But again, we're all, it's complete, complete conjecture. And unfortunately we don't run Netflix. Otherwise it would already have happened, but not yet. Not yet. One other thing that I like about this limbo scene, I don't know if it's necessarily the lesson you're supposed to take away from it, but Sati's parents talk about love, and he's like, I've never heard programs talk about love. And I think that's just sort of like a, hey, like, there's more to this than what you see. But I also see that kind of in a way that, like, just in the Reloaded, how Neo destroyed the Sentinels in the real world, and the real world is sort of becoming more like the Matrix, it feels like the Matrix is kind of becoming more like the real world, where there's emotions, and there's complexity, and there's more than meets the eye. And it's more of a proof that, like, hey, this is all just sort of the same stuff, just in different sections, and everything kind of bleeds over into one another, and everything's kind of the same. Yeah, I like that part of the conversation, too. And especially when her dad's talking about karma, and Neo's like, you believe in karma? And he goes, of course I believe in karma. It's a word, right? Like, And love is a word. And I really like this notion, and I think that is exactly what they're kind of getting at. I love my daughter very much. I find her to be the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But where we are from, that is not enough. Every program that is created must have a purpose. If it does not, it is deleted. I went to the Frenchman to save my daughter. You do not understand. I just have never heard a program speak of love. It is a human emotion. No, it is a word. What matters is the connection the word implies. I see that you are in love. Can you tell me what you would give to hold on to that connection? Anything. Then perhaps the reason you are here is not so different than the reason I am here. You love staying with her? It is not possible. Her arrangement with the Frenchman was for our daughter only. My wife and I must return to our world. Why? That is our karma. You believe in karma? Karma is a word. Like love. A way of saying... What I am here to do. I do not resent my karma. I am grateful for it. Grateful for my wonderful wife, for my beautiful daughter. They are gifts, and so I do what I must do to honor them. Again, this goes back to this idea that we were discussing earlier, which is that one of the emergent themes of the Matrix is that there is no finite reality. There is no, like, this is the real reality. Everything is a, an analog of something else, right? That there's, there's some kind of, like, you're getting closer to it, you're sort of representing it in some way, but in, in the way that the Matrix itself is a representative or a representation of some kind of physical reality, but it's not. I like that conversation that, like, karma is a description of something. Love is a description of something. It, it itself doesn't exist. It is merely, like, the way that we describe a very different much bigger thing that is very difficult to describe and I, I yeah i love that it's a very it's a very subtle it's one of the few like elements of the matrix that doesn't sort of whap you over the head it's a very subtle allusion to the bigger picture of what's going on here which is that there, it's impossible to get a full concept of a full reality and so it's no different for computer programs than it is for people. It just it, it's it's trying to describe something that is in some cases not describable. And, uh, yeah, it's a great that's a great scene. Yeah, I'm just trying to give Mike an opportunity to speak. I'm just seeing if see if he wants to chime in with anything. Before Do you I... hate that scene, Mike? Oh, it's the worst scene in the entire trilogy. No, I love it. No, 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 it's great. At first, I was like, oh man, here we go with like the fifth element again. Love is going to save everybody, but it's 
it's not quite the fifth element, which I appreciate. You know, that is like love is a weapon. Actually, the person is going to save the world with a laser beam coming out of her mouth. I do appreciate that they wanted to integrate this theme because I feel like it was necessary too. And, and this is one of the nice things that comes out of sticking to your story and not trying to force things around. Like, sure, we get stuck with maybe too much of the Zion battle, but they also are able to express new ideas like this throughout the, the third movie even. You know, they're still bringing new levels of consciousness to us that let's look at these things from a whole new perspective when we leave the theater even. And I also, before we leave this train station, I like to say that it was good to see the guy playing the train man. I think he was the guy from like the early Mad Max movies too. And I guess that's a benefit of shooting in Australia. You get some of these great actors to choose from. I'm pretty sure he was the, the helicopter guy, the gyrocopter man. So that was pretty cool. It was like a nice sort of shout, I guess, to, to those apocalyptic films right. also uh <laughs> snm-ish too right like right, right. <laughs> we'll get there when we go well, to yeah, no, i mean here. speaking of snm let's just start talking about that now that you know we talked about how in the last episode the merovingian and persephone monica Bellucci were like the king and queen of hell and their restaurant was sort of maybe one ring of hell one layer of hell like this movie shows us what is basically literally hell that they have to like descend in an elevator down to this club where there's terrible edm have... music and yeah yeah where in I think even in the elevator there's a word that says help like you know like just like a normal button or whatever and the P has been that's right faced <laughs> to read hell so it's just like hey like we're going here and Morpheus and Trinity and Seraph literally have to fight their way through hell to get to the devil and this is Hades, when they're trying yeah. to bargain to get Neo back but one thing that like I know I don't know if I ever really caught on a previous viewing mostly because I don't know that it necessarily has any kind of payoff. But the Merovingian, when he sees the three of them, jokes, Seraph, did you bring them here for your bounty? And I'm like, did they put a, did he put a hit on Morpheus and Trinity? Because like, that's never mentioned again. I don't know if that's a joke or if that's like a, hey, like, you know, whatever credits or dollars or whatever Matrix bucks that they have, like, if anybody can kill these guys, like, I'll pay you, I'll reward you. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I think there's probably just an open bounty on them from going way back, right? I mean, in the first movie, we even see that Morpheus is being hunted and Trinity is being hunted. So he's probably just referring to it. I, I'm not sure. As them as quantum criminals? Yeah, I don't, I, he's not, he's, <laughs> I don't think he's going to pay him. Like, I don't think he was being quite serious. He was just sort of rubbing it in a little bit. What kind of interests me more is that he calls him, you know, the prodigal child and they refer to Seraph as wingless as if he switched sides at some point, right? Like, maybe he was a bad dude once, and then he, like, realized, no, uh, I'm fighting for the wrong side. They they call him a Judas and all this kind of stuff. Right, like, right, right, I, right. I found all that pretty interesting. The prodigal child returns. L'ange sans ses ailes. Are you here for the bounty, Seraph? <laughs> Tell me... How many bullets are there in those guns? I don't know, but I don't think you have enough. We only want to talk. Oh, yes. I'm sure you do. You have fought through hell to do so. Yes? I'll tell you what I will do. Put down the guns and I will promise you a safe passage out of here. All three of us. Oh, yes, yes. Of course. Quelle bonne surprise, n'est-ce pas? Who could have guessed we would all be seeing each other so soon after our last meeting? The fates are too kind. 
And since you, my little Judas, have brought them here, I can only surmise that the fortune teller has found herself another shell. Right. Even though we already had our Judas in the first movie, because Cypher was Judas, like his 30 pieces of silver or whatever he got, being maybe eventually plugged back into the Matrix and becoming someone important, like an actor. Well, so one of the themes of Gnosticism is dualism. Sometimes called radical dualism. It's it's a uh, a sort of a next step towards ethical dualism. Ethical dualism is basically the, the the idea that we're all familiar with, which is that in in sort of Western theological morality, there's a, a good and a bad, right? Kind of duking it out. There's basically a two forces in the universe. One's a good force. One's a bad force. Most Western theology basically is centered around that idea. Gnosticism takes that a step further and, and presents an idea called radical dualism, which is basically that everything has an antithesis. So the idea of there being like a risen angel or there being like an anti-Judas, right? A Judas to the other side, the exact opposite basically of who Cypher is, I, I think makes perfect sense. And if you look at Seraph, whose name is actually very similar to Cypher, look at, right? So you look at Seraph as the opposite of Cypher. I think it's one of those like subtle things that is trying to point you towards that direction of this is how everything really does work, that there is an antithetical to to every element uh, within the Matrix or within sort of both realms of reality, which is the sort of central theme in the battle between Neo and Smith in the way that Smith comes to Neo's level, like he rises to Neo's level, and Neo can go to his level, and and once they're finally sort of polar opposites, that's when the apocalyptic duel begins to happen. So yeah, I think when we hear the Merovingian talk about someone as Judas, right? He's talking about it from his own moral perspective, so he's seeing someone who is who is basically a, a, a turncoat. So I think that is the idea, that Seraph used to be on the other side and judas them. But good observation, That's that's a... That's a good point. There's also something in the background here that no attention is paid to. And I remember like 10 years ago when I was trying to get into the philosophy of what all this means or whatever, there's a woman in white on a pedestal holding an apple in the background. And I think I remember that being something of importance, but I don't remember if that actually is or not. Where? So in the background, when they walk up in their little like lobby section in the upper, in the balcony of hell, they walk up the stairs and come toward... Merovingian, and to their right, they pass a woman on a pedestal holding an apple. I mean, apple, obviously, Garden of Eden. It was just, I remember reading a long, I mean, I didn't do any research, of course, because why would I, why would I prepare for something? But I remember it being something, I just don't remember if it actually, you know, had significance or not. Well, there's, there's, so there's obviously, you mentioned the Garden of Eden thing, and, you know, the forces of evil get to be that way through temptation, that is their, right, the tempting man to, to fall is their M.O. So certainly there might be an Eve reference. The other thing it could be is Persephone, because Persephone, she enters into the underworld because she eats a pomegranate given to her by Hades, which indebts her to Hades, which is why she is forced to go live with him and be his wife, which is what creates winter. So it it could be an allusion to that as well. I mean, I think it's it's probably both things, but it certainly would not be random, nor would it be out of place. One could argue it's the most appropriate thing in the entire club, like the least disturbing imagery that I see going on there. It's funny, I didn't even notice that, but it should stick out more in contrast to highly demonic imagery of the extreme fetishes S&M gear going on. Gas masks with spikes and people hanging from the ceiling, and it's just... They go real far. Like, if Zion is partying, you know, naked underground and stuff, like, this is how programs get down. And meanwhile, we have the Merovingian chomping on 
I like Olives while he's talking about wanting the Oracle's eyes, I guess, so he can have her sight, right? So that, there's, right, I guess, is, is there... Which is what? Because like, it's not the person necessarily that like, they think... They're, they're, I guess there's probably some kind of mythological allusion to, like, it's the eyes that have the ability, and if he has those, maybe he'll be able to see, or maybe he's just, you know, messing around. The windows to the soul, right? That's yeah. That's where I went. Yeah, well, it's also, again, that's also a Greek thing. There's, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the witches that... Um, Oh, the Stitchin witches or something. Yeah, the ones that the yeah. ones that um. I know them from Perseus. Clash of the Titans. Yeah, so yeah, so when Perseus visits them and they have one eye, they have one eye that they pass around, but the eye the eye can see can see into the future. So I mean, there is this idea that like some eyes are enchanted within the Greek context, and and that's what ultimately Smith is after, like when he takes over the body of the Oracle. Which I think is really interesting. I've also forgotten that the, the Smith that he defeats at the end is the Oracle Smith, which i completely forgotten about as well. Is it? Yeah. So you see her, that last shot, she's lying. It's like the dead Smith lying on the ground. It's the Oracle. So it's like reverted back to its Oracle oh. form. Which is why he's like saying to Neo, now I say this, right? I've seen all, because it's the Oracle talking to him. Because I also never really thought about before when she asks him, like before he takes over her body, we're jumping ahead a little bit, when she says, what happened to Sati? And then another agent Smith says, cookies need love, like everything does. I never thought about it until just now, like that was Sati, like that is her. Like that's such a dick move, that's unbelievable. Just like, hey, this is the girl you loved, now he's just, yeah, you would know, mom. It was cool too, like he takes off his sunglasses when he becomes the Oracle, right? So that you could actually see Smith's eyes in terms of the club, in terms of the Merovingian, they're also talking about love. So even if they don't necessarily feel love, they understand love, and love is part of their world. And just like he thought what we were talking about before about karma and love, like even though they might not love one another, they know that love is this force that can drive people to do things, and they have to respect it and fear it for that reason. You know, she's like, I've seen it, she will do anything, she'll kill every one of us if she has to, just to get back to her man. And that's like how much more clear do you have to say like they might not love but like they know what love is and they know that it's a thing that they have to sort of be aware of you want to make a deal how about this you give me neo or we all die right here right now interesting deal you are really ready to die for this man i'll leave it she'll do it if she has to, she'll kill every one of us. She's in love. It is remarkable how similar the pattern of love is to the pattern of insanity. Time's up. What's it gonna be, Merv? Right, and again, it's the only thing that Hades in Greek myth was ever susceptible to, was to the compelling power of love. Like, the only time that he ever would grant concessions is when he was sort of genuinely believed that, that love was on the line, and nothing else. You know, he has no interest in anything else. He's totally the master of his own domain. There's nothing he wants, but he does have this, if not fear, then reverence to the human capacity for love. I like the way that the Merovingian is afraid of it because he knows that basically, you know, Trinity is willing to burn the whole place down. So he doesn't have any sort of real sway over her. She will take it to the end of the road rather than give in. And I think that's really interesting too, right? It kind of goes back to that scene in Limbo in that, yes, you're right, the machines don't understand it, but they have an analog to it, and their analog is, this is destruction. Like, what well, this thing that is insanity will kill us if we don't allow the, the crazy human to do what she needs to do. I also like her reversal 
deal. He's like, bring me the eyes of the Oracle, this and that and the other. And she's like, I don't have time for this shit. And she's like, I had like a deal of my own. That was really interesting. It didn't seem like Merv was used to having the tables turned on him either. And I think that just gained her a lot more credence. They just believed her a lot more because of that action as well. I also like that it seems like he, I mean, we don't know how much time passes between that scene and what's, I think, probably literally the next scene in the movie where they rescue him from Limbo, but it just seems like, yeah, all right, like, cool, like, let's let's go do it, like, here you go, you're about to kill me, so let's just get it done. We don't know how long of a negotiation process there was, but it's like, hey, you know, you won, like, all right, let's, I'll just get you next time. Yeah, I feel like the Merovingian wants to stick around and see the next iteration of the Matrix, if there is one at least, because it doesn't seem like Agent Smith gets to him. I don't know, we never, you know, it's hard. Well, I, we'll get to see. that. Yeah, we'll get to that. I, I feel like he gets to everyone. Like, I think that everyone on Earth or everyone in the Matrix is Smith by the end. But the next, like, big scene is after they rescue Neo, he has to go see the Oracle. And this is the second time in the movie that we've seen the Oracle because Trinity and Morpheus were summoned there. And this is when she says she looks different because she made a choice. That choice was to help them and help Neo. And, like, she knew the outcome of her choice and still did it anyway. And so they took something from her. They took her looks. And she sort of has that thing again here. But what I liked a lot about this scene, it's a little detail, and it's something that I didn't really ever think about until we talked about Reloaded. When in Reloaded, she offers him two candies. He takes the red one. Here, again, she offers him a red candy, and he's just like... I've had enough of your truth. Like, I don't want this candy. Enough is enough, lady. Like, let's just, let's cut it out. I noticed that too. And I, I only noticed it because you brought it up and reloaded as well. So I, I definitely, as I was watching that, I definitely thought of you. And that's, that's, that was a great observation. It's like this little trilogy of red pills <laughs> over the course of, you know, three, three different movies. Like the first time with Morpheus when he's kind of clueless. And then the second time he has a little bit more agency. And then the third time it's like full agency. It's like full, he's decided and he, that he knows and he understands his own truth and his own truth is what matters and and so yeah no more red candy for neo yeah i love that yeah i also like how rapid fire he's rifling off questions it's like the most i feel keanu talks in the matrix trilogy is like during this scene he's like how did i separate my mind from my body what's going on here tell me all the answers i'm ready for like just give it to me give it to me i guess it's when we find out that he knows he has to she says something about like the three power lines at this point and i guess that's a clue for him to realize what he has to do, but she's like, you gotta, you got one more thing to do. I believe he leaves there knowing that he's about to have to make a, a huge sacrifice. The power of the one extends beyond this world back to where it came from, the source. And then basically, you know, like, why didn't I die? I mean, he wasn't ready to die, but like, it's basically like, hey, you're like, this is where you need to go. This is where you need to return to and get ready because you're probably going to die. Like, this is like your one last thing to do. Tonight, the future of both worlds will be in your hands or in his. And it's like, hey, uh, again, no pressure, but like, you know, don't mess up. (laughs) (laughs) And it feels like these stakes are higher for everybody. It seems like we get the one line at the beginning of Reloaded where Smith says to himself, it's happening exactly as before. And then he's like, well, not exactly. And so it feels like this is a new threat to the system of the Matrix, and it extends beyond the program itself into the machine world, right? Like, Smith is like, I will take over the Matrix and destroy it, and then I will go into the real world and destroy everything there as well. I will take out all the machines, too. So he's looking at the end of everything, and that is a lot to really bear there. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So Neo leaves, Smith comes, Smith takes over, I guess he takes over Seraph and Sati and Oracle, and 
it, it seems, and I don't know why, maybe he was just stunned that he did it, but he clones himself onto the Oracle, and then, like, after it happens, he kind of, like, staggers backwards. You know what I'm talking about? He's sort of, I guess, shocked, maybe, that he was able to do this. Like, this was, like, this all-powerful woman, and yet she just succumbed to him as well? Yeah, I also think he's kind of overwhelmed by the power of what he's just become. It makes sense no matter kind of how you read it. There's, It's obviously a an overwhelming moment. And as Smith is becoming more and more the Matrix itself, the idea that he's like overloading himself a little bit, that's how I've always read it anyways. I also kind of liked how the dominant Smith was no longer the dominant one at the end of that sequence. He puts his arm into the Oracle and then the one that becomes the Oracle is sort of in charge now is how I took it too. And I also love when we get to see stuff in Matrix code. So it was really cool to see him transforming and you see it in the form of the Matrix code and everything is sort of whirling around in a big whirlwind and you can see the code flying around and like you can tell like they wouldn't show that unless it was important and that is probably like a huge thing. He's hacking, you know, more of the system. Now it seems like he's almost able to control it. It almost seems like by the end, Duel, he's crafted it into his version of the Matrix. If you take a step back and you sort of zoom out a little bit and you see from the real world you're watching the Matrix, it's like bugging out. Like it's basically glitchy and broken and like what they're used to seeing is not like it's not this smooth stream of code that like works. That's like this, you know, this reality or version of reality that people accept. But it's just like there's patches missing and like things are going wrong, even though it doesn't look like you make one change, like the Oracle becomes Smith, and in the world, there's that's only you only see that one little difference. But like behind the scenes, it's causing all sorts of havoc. Right, and what you're talking about there, that I've always really liked that element of it too, because it it's it's a it's a really cool way of addressing the philosophical underpinnings of Jewish apocalypticism of of the idea that like everything is going wrong, and surely something is about to change because we've sort of reached a fever pitch whereby either we give up on this whole thing and we abandon this whole religious notion of being the chosen people and having this one God, or we explain it through this going wrong thing is a a means to an end whereby, you know, the Messiah will come and put everything right again. So I like the sort of visual representation like on the screen of the matrix in the coding to sort of show that whole like oh okay this is the beginning of what the catalyst towards a sort of renewal the messiah doing what the messiah does and and bringing about a new kind of harmony but before he brings about that harmony he's got to deal with obstacles in the real world I like that, you know, he's got enough on his plate in the Matrix to deal with, and then all of a sudden he's in the real world, and before he even gets to where he knows he has to deal with this overwhelming presence he doesn't know what he's going to do with, and all the machines, he's also got Agent Smith in the real world. It's like he can't catch a break, you know what I mean? There's just so many obstacles for him to overcome that Smith, through Bane, is now in the real world, and they have to fight in the real world, where he ostensibly doesn't have powers. I mean, we we know that he has some powers, but he's not able to break the world world the way that he can fully in the matrix mr anderson i see you are as predictable in this world as you are in the other what he's out of his mind it might appear that way to you but mr anderson and i know that appearances can be deceiving confused mr anderson it'll all become clear in a moment somehow familiar isn't it We've been here before, you and I, remember? I do. I think of nothing else. 
still don't recognize me. I admit it is difficult to even think encased in this rotting piece of meat. The stink of it filling every breath, a suffocating cloud you can't escape. <laughs> Disgusting. Look at how pathetically fragile it is. Nothing this weak is meant to survive. Yes. That's it, Mr. Anderson. Look past the flesh. Look through the soft gelatin of these dull cow eyes and see your enemy. Oh, yes, Mr. Anderson. You can't be. There is nowhere I can't go. There is nowhere I won't find you. It's impossible. Not impossible. Inevitable. I just feel bad for him. He's just got so much on his plate. And again, and this is very biblical, right? This is the notion of the two versions of Jesus, the, the risen and the earthly Jesus, both of whom go through their own trials and both of whom kind of suffer in some way. The, the risen Jesus has to come back at the end of time and like fight in the apocalypse <laughs> and, and defeat the beast and the antichrist and all that stuff. And then the Jesus on earth goes through, you know, his own struggles and gets his own ass kicked as well in the end and, you know, suffers on the cross and all that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, it would be cheap to not make Neo both in his supernatural state and in his natural state have to go through the same kind of struggles and suffering as Jesus does, or else you're not really going to tell a very good Christ story in the form of Neo if you don't make him do that. The blinding thing I didn't see coming, but I love the effect of it. Nice little pun, nice little joke there. You didn't see oh, it coming. Oh, I didn't mean it, mean it that way. But um, that was one of the cool, I think one of the cool innovations of the movie to, to present a new way of thinking about what's really going on that I was... Surprised by the first time I saw it, and I still think it works really well as a plot device. And it's maybe a little too heady for people. What, that he can see, like, he can basically read it like it's the Matrix, but in real world? Like, he can see the fiery hatred of Smith and also see the the, like, the Sentinels and the robots and the power and lines it's, and, and it's beautiful to him, is the thing, right? It's like the, the reality, the underpinning of, of reality is beautiful. That The essence of reality is a thing of beauty, even if the experience of it is ugly. And so, you know, when he tells Trinity, I wish you could see what I see, there's something just like it's like glowing and gorgeous right and that very we'll, we'll talk about the last scene a little bit later but that last scene of him being sort of carried off it's glowing and it goes back to again the first movie when he has his moment of enlightenment his first enlightenment is when he sees the matrix for what it really is he sees it in code but it turns out again as we as this theme carries on that that there is no <laughs> there is no real world there's no real reality they're all just different iterations of reality that he then is able to do the same thing in the material world that he can do in the, in the Matrix world, to see it for what it really is. Like, there's an underlying code to the quote-unquote reality as well. Now, the things that he sees in gold, are those meant to be connected to the source, or are they just meant to be read? Like, is it like a sort of a shorthand, like, these are more important? In Reloaded, the Seraph shows up as gold, right? Seraph shows up as gold? And then in this, before he actually gets to Machine City, which we know from Animatrix 01, and it's somewhere, I think, in North Africa, he sees that one sentinel that basically attacks the ship directly as gold. And is that like him just seeing what's more important or what's a little bit different from the world? around them, or are they somehow all intrinsically tied to the source? I think the idea is that they're all tied to the source. But the, everything's tied to the source. The source is the source. It is like, it is ultimately everything is just a manifestation in some way of the source. 
that's that's always been my assumption. I, I don't know that you need to read much deeper into it than that. Okay, okay. What I did think was cool, though, was when the movie started this time, we see yellow code again with, with sort of like a big bang inside the Matrix. I thought that was really interesting. And it like zooms all the way deep in and you see like all these spirals and, and stuff. And then it zooms way, way back out. And so I wonder if that was literally the beginning big bang like we saw we looked all the way back at the creation of the matrix or something that was definitely a big bang of some kind yeah i never thought about it like that but I yeah like, i, had, I, like I had either it's a really good point um what i do really like and this is getting to my favorite shot i think probably in any of the three movies is that you know like john just said when neo says to trinity i wish you could see what i'm seeing she also gets the benefit of seeing something beautiful that she's never seen before when they're on the way to Machine City and like he's like, you have to go up, go up, go up. And she goes over the clouds and gets into like this otherwise destroyed world and she sees like this beautiful blue sky. And, you know, within a minute or two, she's going to be dead, which is, you know, devastating. But I love that just break through the clouds. You know, Neo is seeing the world for what it really is, but she's seeing the world sort of for, for like what it could be or what it was, even though there's all this death and destruction and we, we caused our own demise down below by scarring the skies and then they turned us into batteries. She sees this like beautiful hope in this, you know, I just love that like those three or four seconds that like we're in the air and just sort of hovering as they're plummeting back down toward Machine City. Yeah, it almost reminded me of, you know, like the classic interpretation of heaven, right? Where it's like a cloudy skies and sunshine all the time and the pearly gates and everything. So it's it, it's kind of nice that she gets a glimpse of that uh, right before she dies. But she gets a glimpse, right? She sees something nobody else on the entire planet has seen. So she gets to have that. Uh, I feel like that's a really nice payoff for her. Uh, he will also see something no one else on the planet will have seen, which is going to be like the heart of Machine City and you know the way that it glows from his perspective. Well, actually, I was going to say something jokingly about that poem about nothing gold can stay, and there's, like, green and gold and all this different stuff, but, like, Neo's literally seeing in, in shades of green and gold. It's too beautiful to last, and she sees this beauty, and that's the one word she says, and then they crash down, and she dies for the second time in two movies, except this is a death that I really wonder if, like, could Neo have saved her? Because we know that this is not necessarily real, and he saves her from the Matrix when he, like, scoops out the bullet. We see that. But like here, he probably could have, or no. Again, I think the the idea is that they're getting away from there being a, a sort of permanent finite reality and getting back to one of the kind of tenets of the first Matrix, which is that like there are rules within any given reality, and those rules have to apply. So that within the Matrix reality, right, Neo is able to bend those rules when it comes to death because he has a connection to the source outside of the matrix but his mastery over life and death kind of in the material world ends there but i would not assume that that is the end of the road for the consciousness that is trinity and that i think it's safe to assume that there is another or or even an, an infinite number of realities right whereby her consciousness can transcend into something else, call it heaven or reincarnation or whatever you want. But it's pretty clear that like there is some higher realm of existence that we don't really ever get to see, but is obviously there because there's a source. And Neo 
is constantly like reborn at the end of any of the iterations of the Matrix. So no, I I, I don't think he's able to save her, but I think the idea that we're supposed to take away is like, it doesn't really matter. Like death isn't really the end and what is the end is irrelevant in, in some ways because it's just like, you know, she'll go on in some other kind of a form. There's the, everything has a beginning and an end and a beginning cyclical nature of time that seems to be one of the rules of this whole universe. I, uh, that's that's how that's how I would take it. So it's less that like she died and more that he kind of could accept that she dies cuz he kind of now knows that the reality is is a lot more infinite and larger than anybody had assumed. So he is kind of okay with her dying knowing that he's about to as well and that there's going to be some next chapter for both of them in some kind of reality that's how i look at it anyway i i, I, I don't think he could save her is the short answer to the to the question any more than he can save himself but he also has like bigger things he has to do like he's got he's got bigger things to deal with he does <laughs> yeah. well, I, well i guess what's kind of interesting and i never thought about that just now but like the architect gives him two doors right like save trinity or save everybody else and here, in a way, maybe, whether or not he can actually save her, he sort of chooses the other door here. He can't save Trinity, he's got to save everyone else. So that's cool. That's nice. Yeah, it is cool. But again, it's part of the... I, I think that's part of his sort of revelation that there is bigger forces at play here. There's more to the universe than he understands, and he has kind of come to accept that. And so is she, when she was like, look, every moment I had with you like, is something that I treasure and I wouldn't trade it for anything, and blah, blah, blah. There's a logical end to their lives during this whole sequence. And, and trying to save her would be like, would just ruin everything, <laughs> right? I mean, like, yeah. that's, that's really kind of what it comes down to, is that, is that this is the moment that they die, and whatever death is, is, is something that I think at that point, given all the weirdness that they've experienced, they can be a little, you know, sort of assume that there's, there's more going on here. We skipped over the whole battle sequence, by the way. Like, Yeah, which is fine. We talked about it. I mean, Mike talked about it a little yeah. bit. Anybody have more to talk about with the battle scene well, in there Zion? Well, is, there, is, there is some significance to the battle scene. All right, John, explain to me why this battle scene matters. <laughs> okay, well, so first of all, the reason it's called Revolutions is it's not called Revelations, because that would be too obvious. And so, so much of this movie is rooted in the book of Revelation, which is the final book of the New Testament, in terms of narrative books of the New Testament, which ostensibly is about the end of time. It's about the second coming of Christ. It's about when God will finally just, like, obliterate everything on Earth and bring about a new era of existence. What you should think about, though, is looking at Revolution to the movie in terms of where it fits in the narrative of The Matrix in the same kind of chronology in which the book of Revelations was written. So Revelations was written around, like, 90 AD or so. And so it was just before the Gospel of John. It was written by a guy named John, but these are two different Johns, although traditionally they're the same one. They're not. Revelations was written by a Greek writer who was writing something that clearly had political and theological implications to it. Uh, but the book of Revelations is about really two things. It's about the evil of the Roman Empire. It was a, a doctrine to kind of tell Christians in code not to kind of succumb to Roman life, to remain separate from, okay. from the evil Roman powers. So there's there's some obvious matrix similarities there. Okay, yep. But most importantly, it's a, it's a way of putting into context what was the most sort of devastating moment and the, and the real turning point between Judaism and Christianity of the first century, which was the fall of the Jerusalem Temple in 70 AD. So when Jerusalem was under Roman control, again, there's another matrix idea there. So when Zion, sure. uh, which is Jerusalem, uh, was under con the control of Rome, basically the Jewish people had, had divided into separate factions, and they were dealing with Roman occupation in different ways. And, and some of them were basically 
cutting deals with Rome and, and making themselves very wealthy in the process. They're called the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were basically people who got along to get along in Rome. And, and the Essenes were people like, who gave up and lived out in the desert. And then there's one group called the Zealots. And the Zealots were the ones who basically believed that you could confront the Roman Empire militaristically. So their project of <laughs> attacking Roman soldiers eventually led to the siege of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Titus and his father Vespasian were sort of co-emperors at the time, and, and they laid siege to the temple in Jerusalem and destroyed it. When the temple was destroyed, it was a, a turning point in Judaism, in that the people who relied on the temple as basically the center of their religious life didn't have it anymore. So when Zion fell, you know, the people scattered. And, and one of the things that a lot of them picked up was Christianity, because Christianity was offering a different way forward. It was offering a way that the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Zealots and the, and the Sadducees were not offering. It was a new way of looking at the religion entirely, and it became, in fact, its own religion itself. So one of the things that's happening with the final apocalyptic battle scene in The Matrix, although it's too long, is a lot of the same imagery of, you know, the beast like rising in Zion and laying waste to everything, the zealots holding their ground in the form of Morpheus and so forth. And then you see what's going on with Neo, and Neo is sort of off-screen, right, showing a new way forward and, and, and presenting a new world and a new world order that we see at, at the end of the movie. So, yeah, as we've talked about in length, the merits of the battle scene itself can be discussed. <laughs> the fact that it's there is obviously necessary because you need that symbolism, you need that contrast to the Book of Revelations for the story to really be told effectively. Well, so, like, I like that, but it's frustrating because people like you go see the movie and you understand on some level what that is and you're able to be like, oh, this is just like that in 70 AD. But then for most people, just like, why is this still going on? They don't do anything to make it, I mean, not that they ever really sugarcoat in terms of like what anything means but that's so in your face for so long and they're just like eh, we're not gonna tell you that it's like all about the adoption of christianity i agree I, I mean i think a lot of people can see most people have some sense of what the book of revelation is it certainly is the most controversial book in the bible there's a lot of discussion about whether or not it should even be in there it really was a, a secret code among early christians it was not it was a political doctrine it was never meant to be a real telling of the end of the world it was written in such a way that the authorities wouldn't understand what it meant but certainly people who spoke the language would understand what it meant but at the same time because of the sort of rise of fundamentalist christianity over the last century or so and the popularity of like the left behind books and all that sort of thing imagery of the apocalypse of revelation is pretty well known i think most people if they have a sense that there's this jesus narrative being played out they could basically get the idea that what's going on in Revolutions in that final stand of Zion is a nod to the book of Revelation. On the other hand, like I agree with you, but on the other hand, like if you stuck with these movies this far, then it's probably a topic you're interested in. So even if you're not versed in it, then it's still something that it, maybe you finish watching the movie and like do some research and like, oh, that was cool. But yeah, so again, you're right. It's too esoteric. I totally understand that. But I, as someone who immediately gets this stuff. I find it really cool. Even though, again, I think the battle scene is just like so overdone, takes too long, and not entirely effective. And it also doesn't even have like a satisfying ending, because it just sort of ends. We have the ending somewhere else, but we have we spend so much time in Zion watching this fight, and then it just ends really through no fault of either side. They're just like, well, we're going to lay down our arms, and just, they reached a piece somewhere else, and so this is all sort of, not for naught, but like, yeah, there's no real resolution here. Well, I think there is, though. I mean, the resolution is that it's a new day. It's a new piece. I mean, it's the same... Yeah, again, okay, so this, again, is a is an idea early Christianity. It, 
early Christianity did not go the way it was supposed to go. It didn't resolve the way it was supposed to resolve. Jesus as the Messiah was not meant to be a guy who like became some weird ghost man, and that's how things worked out. The idea was that he was going to take up arms against the Roman Empire and by the end of a sword, like overthrow the evils of the world and be king on earth. That's what Messiah meant. The first Messiah in Jewish scripture was David, and David is the model for a Messiah. It's the guy who like is the militaristic physical king of the Jewish people, that's who Jesus was supposed to be. That's who his followers thought he was going to be. Then he died on a cross, and it seemed like they were wrong. Like, that would have been their logical conclusion. That it was all for naught thing is consistent as well with the sort of Christology of the Matrix. But it's not all for naught. The reason that the Sentinels turn away, there's a good reason for it. The reason that they fought that battle was to get to that point where Neo could save them all. And you have this beginning of a new era. So the idea of the Messiah changed once Jesus appeared to his followers after his death. Only then were they convinced, oh, no, that's not what the Messiah is. The Messiah has a much bigger, broader purpose than what we thought he did, right? And in some way, that's true of Morpheus as well, who doesn't seem to think that Neo has to die. He thinks Neo is going to be like their leader who overthrows the machines. Neo sacrifices himself, and that's how everything changes. So again, I disagree. I do think it does have a logical conclusion, or at least yeah, a, a, a theological conclusion, uh, if not a logical one. I mean, at the end of the day, I still like this movie. I mean, I don't like it as much as the other two, so I'm not really, I'm not really looking for points to nitpick or anything. It just feels like there's so much there in the that it could have been better or intercut with other things, or I'm not even sure what they could have done, but I mean, maybe like you were saying a while ago, if they balance reloaded in this and cut this down from like 40 minutes to 15 or 20, maybe it's a different thing, but I, I honestly don't know what to do differently other than just getting maybe to Neo and Trinity sooner, because their path to Machine City is kind of amazing. I was just going to say my final word on the whole Zion thing is it's it's hard because they are locked into this scene. Right? I think we discussed earlier, like just by the way the story is dictating everything. The Wachowskis aren't trying to force stuff that isn't really necessary. I really feel like they're listening to the story and going where it wants to go. And so therefore, we have to have this battle sequence. And maybe there are people out there who made it this far in the Matrix trilogy and aren't really all in on the philosophical religious stuff and are there just to digest like big crazy summer blockbuster action. So who knows if this might be for them as well, right? Like they might be the ones totally skipping over all of the subtext and they're just here because they do like this crazy insane action just for the sake of crazy insane action. Even though, you know, we've agreed that this isn't quite what we like there could be people out there who are just as into this side of the matrix as we are uh into the other side of the matrix and i, I think you're right but I, I think that's a lot of reason why people didn't like it because frankly the action isn't that good like it's the sequences in zion just from a, like cinematically just aren't that good I, I think they're kind of poorly designed the cgi never quite works like it just something always looks kind of off and weird about it and the zion world just isn't that interesting and again, like the big complaint I always hear about revolutions is not even like, you know, people can take or leave the religion stuff, I guess. But the one I always hear is like, it spends too much time in Zion. There's not enough time spent in the Matrix. And I think there's actually quite a bit of time spent in the Matrix in revolutions. But because that scene, because that middle chunk is just so overbearing uh, that it kind of ends up feeling that way. And I agree. I mean, it's certainly how I feel watching it, too. But at least the movie is redeemed by 
what Neo does, and they follow the path to Machine City. You see the fields again. Yeah. Was, that was really cool, too. I liked that, and you see like they're right next to the power plant, and, and that power plant kind of looks like giant server towers to me. I don't know if that crossed your mind at all. Oh. Any sort of oh, yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. computer yeah. imagery with that. It's very cool. And they follow the three power lines like the Oracle told him to. It's a movie, but like we've been on a journey with them and like they're finally they're reaching the end of the journey and they're finally like seeing the possibilities of like a brighter future. Within maybe a minute of her seeing the sunlight, she is dead for the second time in two movies. Over the course of these three movies, both of these people die twice. Right. Like that's, that's right. a lot of death yeah. for one couple to sustain. He comes face-to-face with Baby in the Machine, which is modeled after Lily Wachowski's infant nephew. He comes face-to-face with what they call Deus Ex Machina in the movie. Like, I think... Yeah, the subtitles refer to it as that. That's great. And it's kind of amazing, because, like, in terms of, like, Greek mythology, it's this thing that, like, the hero really hasn't earned, even though Neo has earned it. But, like, it's this out that sort of saves the day. But I guess, really, this is sort of a Hail Mary, going back to the Shane Falco, Johnny Utah days of Keanu. He's thrown along and just hoping for a miracle, and he is able to convince this baby that they need each other to stop Smith because Smith is way too powerful. The program Smith has grown beyond your control. Soon he will spread through this city as he spread through the Matrix. You cannot stop him. That's true, then I've made a mistake and you should kill me now. What do you want? Peace. And if you fail, I won't. Right, so, okay, I love this moment, and there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. First of all, I didn't know <laughs> that Deus Ex Machina was the name of the actual being, and that's amazing. It's perfect. For those listeners who don't know what Deus Ex Machina means, it means it's God in the Machine, and it's, a, it's an old sort of like classical playwright trick that eventually became considered to be shorthand for lazy storytelling, where you'd write a play and you wouldn't know how to end it and so you just like bring in a machine that creates God and just like performs a miracle and then everybody lives happily ever after. Like that's what Deus Ex Machina means. In this case, what you literally have is God from the machine. So you have these sentinels who are all sort of swarming around to create the image of a face that's like the face of God, right? In a very sort of old-timey <laughs> theology sort of way, like a very kind of Greek Zeus, this booming voice and this intimidating look. This is very much in the Gnostic tradition because what that figure represents is something called the Demiurge, which is what the, the Gnostics call God. It basically means that God's a false God. The Demiurge is not to be confused with the source. And what Gnostics sort of criticized Jews and Christians for, uh, or their fellow Christians, was confusing the source of the universe with the God who created the earth. So the God of Genesis, right, the God who creates this world for us to live in, which is an artificial world, according to the Gnostics, is taking credit for something he didn't do. The source is what did that. So in mainstream Christianity now, right, God is Jesus' dad. They have a very close relationship with each other. It is not an adversarial relationship. For the Gnostics, it is an adversarial relationship. It is at best something with which there can be a truce. But 
Jesus represents to the Gnostics a way of basically overpowering the Demiurge and, and seeing past its lies in order to become one with the source, which is exactly what happens here. And when Neo confronts God, so to speak, right, it's not a father-son dynamic. It is a guy saying, okay, like, I've gotten to this point where you're afraid of me, or I can do something for you, right? We are basically now co-equals. Let's talk, (laughs) right? Let's make a deal. And I'm going to allow the people of the world to pursue the true God, to pursue a truth that you have been hiding from them the entire time. So the payoff here in terms of like the Gnostic theology with that image of like, this face made of tiny machines, which is amazing. Literally, like, them lying to him, right? Them creating this artifice that's it's really clever. And, like, that, to me, like, along with what Mike was saying about even this late in the day, they're still able to do things that are visually and conceptually interesting um, that I would never have thought of and that works so well within the context of what they're trying to say is really, really impressive. And, yeah, it's super creepy that it's a baby face, but it makes sense. There's something creepy about it, but also it makes me feel like it's infantile in a way, right? Like It's like, like naive, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting that it's the way it chooses to represent itself, especially to someone like Neo, uh, who might they, might, they may think he can't see him, though. Like, that's the other thing. Like, we also get to see what Neo sees, and it's just like, it looks like the sun, like he's staring into the sun. Like baby sun from the Teletubbies? Because he's basically a baby sun. <laughs> there you go. Basically. Oh, no. Basically is. Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, what's crazy to me, and I didn't really, this didn't really sink in until like, especially this viewing, but the last few viewings of this movie, because it's kind of an endurance test, but uh, <laughs> getting getting back to like Smith is like just how far he's gone and just how big the stakes are. Like he isn't just content with wiping out the Matrix and everyone in that, like he's coming for the real world too, not just the humans, but the machines, right? So he's not going to be happy until there's nothing, like absolutely nothing left, which is dire like this is clearly like they have what like an hour to do something about this or everything is going to end yeah and smith has become the the theological antichrist here right so he's moved from being a a demonic character sort of early on he's evolved and through his evolution he, he moves through a sort of trajectory of western theological moral thought to being the dualistic Antichrist. So one of the one of the features of the Book of Revelation is the idea of what's referred to as the beast in the Book of Revelation. And some people mistake for being the devil, but the beast is not the devil. The beast is sort of the manifestation of the source of evil in the universe made incarnate. And that's what we're seeing happening to Smith throughout this movie. He's transcending his normal barriers. He's becoming a physical form. He becomes Bane. Who, by the way, I know we haven't talked about this, but like the guy who plays Bane, his impression of Hugo Weaving is really impressive. Thought it was Hugo Weaving forever. (laughs) (laughs) In the trivia for this, it says he was cast because he kind of looks like him and he can do a really good impression. It's amazing, right? So, like, I mean, we never even mentioned that, but yeah, so when he becomes Smith, there's it's interesting too because we talked about the Merovingian earlier, and the Merovingian is, is essentially Hades from Greek myth. In the book of Revelation, Hades is killed in that book because, again, it was written by a Greek author who's using a lot of Greek theology. So, the notion that, like, part of what the book of Revelations represents is, is, is a new way of thinking about evil. You know, Hades is sort of 
old news and not especially all that interesting or influential anymore. But this guy, this idea of, of evil descending upon the world and being fully incarnate into a single being is it, it, in the case of Smith, like that is what he's doing, right? He's, he's gone away from having any rational motive. All he wants to do now is consume and destroy. And he will literally take everything along with him which is what gives the false god some incentive to stop him and to and to make some alliance with with Neo. So yeah, I mean it's it's cool the way that the stakes are raised. It's also cool the way that the the actual um, trajectory of Smith as an antichrist figure happens so kind of seamlessly uh, and then becomes really obvious in that final showdown scene between the two of them when they meet on the rainy street with the immaculate raindrops and what have you. Which is my favorite scene, and I think in all three movies, because this final battle is just so cool. Really I love is. how we get there, though. I love that the Machine City has a main line right into the Matrix, and they plug Neo into every single output that he has right, like, on right. his body and everything. Like I thought that was really, really cool. <laughs> they could just summon I think it's fu- the plugs whenever they need them. Well, like, you think about like designing Machine City, and like no human's probably ever been there, but like we're going to need this one day. Like I promise that we'll need this one little gadget. Like we're, We need this plug, and then like they're searching around their desk for like where the, the cable is to plug <laughs> Neo in, but it's a world filled with smiths, and before we talk about that, two things about the rain. Number one, apparently it's raining Matrix code. Not all the raindrops are Matrix code, but I think some of them are. I think symbolically, uh, right, it's supposed to represent yes. the code sort of raining down the screen. And we're now seeing into the Matrix in the way that, say, like an operator looks at the screen and can decipher the code of the Matrix. Or going all the way back to the very beginning of the first movie, before he really is, before he takes the pill, he sees the the window washers washing off their window and like the the rain looks like code there too so beginning and end etc etc the other thing is that they apparently spent two months designing a rig that created the perfect raindrop which is of insane course, of course they did uh, yeah. why, why because, would you do that? I mean, i'm sure it's just like a team that was doing that but like we talked about for reloaded how that highway chase took three months to film which is longer than most movies like a group of people i don't know how many spent two months of their lives perfecting a raindrop for this movie which is just it's it's perfect <laughs> it looks great but it, what's amazing is i mean i understand not every shot in this final battle is cgi but there is a ton of it and i'm sure yeah. you could have tweaked normal rain just a little i mean it's great it's amazing <laughs> it, it's a testament to their willpower of filmmaking like everything has to be precisely the way they like it but it, it again it it also folds into the excessive nature of these movies in a lot of ways i love this scene because it's the well, first of all, like it just—it feels so much more apocalyptic than the Zion battle does. It feels much more meaningful. It feels much more like there's there's much more impact to this. And again, this goes back to something I said much earlier, which is my my basic problem with the whole Zion battle scene is that it just does not play to the Wachowskis' strengths. What they're really good at is taking these very sort of narrowly focused set pieces. They can do huge things with them, but when you, it's basically just two guys fighting in the most crazy, like, you know, explosive way possible, like literally explosive. There's like a nuclear explosions that go off when they punch each other, which is great. But it, it, that just feels like so much more meaningful. It just feels so much more sort of, you know, sort of fire and brimstone, you know, hellfire than anything in the in the uh, the Zion battle does. And and it's it's so well done. It's so well choreographed. Even that one shot that's clearly all CGI when Smith's face gets punched in slow motion and like clearly Neo CGI and clearly <laughs> CGI and that's like the worst shot in the whole thing but otherwise the entire sequence like down to the the lighting of it the design of it is just so it's so great it really 
that really just kind of redeemed the entire movie to me as an action movie. Yeah, I feel like this is a really great, well-earned final curtain call, if you will, like uh, to end like the, these movies on too. Like, and and we care about Neo, right? Like, he's. <laughs> I would argue, like, I don't really care about anyone in Zion. I mean, even Morpheus wasn't down there during the battle yet. Uh, but I've been with Neo on his journey for all this, all these hours and <laughs> all these movies, and like, I really, I am invested in this fight. So. Yeah, I definitely care more about it, and I would even argue it's it, you're you're totally right about like how they're better exploring things with less characters. But like, this isn't even just two guys fighting. This is p- pretty much one guy fighting himself. <laughs> like, like, I mean, yes, we're seeing two people fight, but like, pretty much they're making a guy fight with like his you know inner demons. One of the most amazing things I've seen on screen. So are we to believe that everyone in this world is Smith? Because that's the impression that I get, that he has everyone but Neo, who I guess wasn't even in the Matrix at this time, was converted to a Smith, and they seem to all be lining the streets. Yeah, I mean, that's like the really horrifying way. Of, like, I think that would work better if they spelled that out, if they basically said, like, he's, he's all that's left inside the Matrix now, this is your challenge. I want to think that that's true, but I feel like if, they, if it were true, then it would have been something they would have said explicitly as a way of just upping the stakes a little bit to be like it's all it's all gone and he's all that's left which certainly would make that arrangement that he makes with the deus ex machina more meaningful but sure i mean i I, you can go ahead and think that and what lends itself to like that idea is that which i think is really cool the last thing you see when he finally defeats smith is that the smith he defeats is actually the oracle Right, so it's like it's the version of Smith who overtook the Oracle's body. So I think like part of the idea is like once the Oracle falls, then like everything falls, right? Because she basically is the virus scan. The Matrix is leader of the resistance. <laughs> it's, it's it's the Matrix is like like Norton, you know, antivirus. She's the firewall. She's the firewall. Yes. Okay. I, I'm kind of picturing the architect hanging out with Train Man in limbo while all this is going down, sort of like waiting <laughs> to see how it pans out and if they need to. If the architect's like, oh, I gotta rewrite this sucker head for the source but on the other hand like we saw like that scene in, in reloaded where basically like it's just a whole block full of non-stop smiths as well so you know maybe it's just this one part of the city he's become completely smithed out whether or not he's everyone or just most people or just a lot of people he becomes the virus that he was complaining to morpheus in the first movie that man had become so it's this nice little reversal of that and i don't even know if he's aware i mean i'm sure he's aware but like he doesn't care anymore but he's he's his own thing that he's more powerful he's a super virus if we were a virus he's a super virus that's able to destroy and defeat and become and overpower the virus yeah, and again, that's a very common both like theological and mythological idea is the being that becomes the thing it most hates or most fears, like through its own hatred and fear, right? It's that is what leads Smith to be the thing that he finds so disgusting and repellent, which is a virus, right? And like through his own disgust and repellence towards viruses, like that's what makes him into a virus. Yeah, we see that kind of thing all the time, especially in myth. Or even like, you know, like Anakin Skywalker. He's this like super emo, wants to love the girl guy, and of course, like he becomes this like half robot machine thingy, right? It's that's a classic idea, but it doesn't usually apply to the bad guy, which I think is what's really cool about that sort of arc is that we see like the bad guy does the thing where he becomes the thing that he hates, and like we don't really that doesn't tend to be a, a story arc that ever really takes place. Like he starts off as the bad guy and becomes a worse guy <laughs> by being so hell bent on his crusade, becomes the thing that he's crusading against. 
it wouldn't work if that one scene didn't exist in the first movie, right? If he if he didn't say that thing to Morpheus, then like what you bring up wouldn't even be a plot point. It would just be the way that it is. But because he gives that speech about viruses, it makes this a lot more compelling. That like, oh, he's the ultimate virus. He's taken over. He is the Internet Explorer of. <laughs> <laughs> of I also love how this how the Wachowskis have just dealt with artificial intelligence throughout this whole series as well. Like the, just the idea that you know Smith is a program, right? But he is becoming more human than machine in a lot of ways. Like, like you said, he referred to humanity as a virus, and now he is one. And whether or not he's conscious of that is another thing. But, I mean, we're seeing, you know, from Reloaded on, all of these programs acting way more human than a lot of the humans, embracing love and destiny and purpose and all these kinds of things that humanity sort of seems to have lost along the way somewhere maybe or or forgotten how to embrace and so it's just really cool that they haven't stopped with Smith that he's almost the ultimate embodiment of one of their points here I just really liked that whole aspect of the Matrix in itself. We don't see a lot of that in stories about robots. I mean, the movie Ex Machina did it really well and explored artificial intelligence, but this is really cool stuff because you don't really know who's human or who's a machine until they spell it out. And Battlestar Galactica did it too, And I, but I, I think again, that's another thing that they were inspired by the Matrix in some way in writing that series, that what you were talking about is a is a huge plot thread throughout throughout that series. But, you know, I'm talking about the reboot of it, and that came pretty much right after The Matrix was was out. I, I think the Wachowskis really did push forward a lot of these ideas in terms of artificial intelligence, because prior, I think the staple, at least the, the sort of most successful mainstream pop cultural one was probably Terminator. Uh, and Terminator merely is the idea of the machines will rise up against us and slaughter us all. And there's very little in terms of, like, the development of humanity among the machines in terminator 2 it happens a little bit right and there's sort of a nod to it but not as a overwhelming driving force where machines realize that human emotions have a certain advantage to them and need to sort of bring those on board as well we also get in this scene maybe my favorite line of dialogue, which I'm, I'm worried to know if John likes this or hates this, because when Mike and I were gushing about the first movie, he said that, you know, oh, there's actually a lot of lines that are actually really poorly written, but you just sort of overlook them. But the speech that Smith gives about why, like when he knocks Neo down and he just does the whole, like, why, why get up? Why oh, no, I it? love why that. Keep fighting? Oh, yeah. Why, Mr. Anderson? Why? Why? Why do you do it? Why? Why get up? Why keep fighting? You believe you're fighting for something, for more than your survival? Can you tell me what it is? Do you even know? Is it freedom or truth? Perhaps peace? Could it be for love? Illusions, Mr. Anderson, vagaries of perception. Temporary constructs of a feeble human intellect trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose. And all of them as artificial as the Matrix itself. Although, only a human mind could invent something as insipid as love. You must be able to see it, Mr. Anderson. You must know it by now. You can't win. It's pointless to keep fighting. Why, Mr. Anderson, why? Why do you persist? Because I choose to. 
I was going to say, even if you hated that, because uh, I, I love that all, and then just the end, because when Neo says, because I choose to, it's like, yeah, dude, like, like piss off. Like, I'm doing this because I'm human. This is me getting up. You're never going to really beat me because I have free will, right? Like, he already knows what the outcome is. Now he's just understanding why, and he, I think this is the moment where he finally realizes the why, and that's to save humanity. Yeah, and again, I brought this up before, and I think this is another really good illustration of that, is that the freedom of choice is, especially in the Christian context, believed to be the ultimate virtue, right? It's the, it's the highest possible virtue. It's the thing that, it's the greatest gift that God can give, which is why God does not come out of the sky and settle the debate, right? Because we are left with the opportunity to choose to believe in God or not. And if God decided to be like, oh, here I am, then we would lose that ability. And so driving home that point, I think it's it's pretty well earned in that moment that like this is what it comes down to, is that Neo has a choice. And regardless of what you think, and regardless of like what's determined and what's programmed and what's whatever, that choice still exists. And Smith basically proves his point for him, right? Because Smith gets so frustrated with the fact that he's still making this choice, and that ultimately is what the dividing line is. And yeah, no, I think that's a great, great moment. And so this is, I guess, the, maybe the last question that I have about the trilogy, because it's the last thing that isn't explicitly laid out, but... Neo fights Smith and then ultimately kind of gives up and just says, you know, he lets Smith overtake him. And that's when literally all we see on screen are different Smiths. And this is when Smith explodes. And I guess there's two different reasons why this could be. And and it really directly ties into whether or not everyone in the world is Smith, because I thought it could be that Smith no longer has a purpose. Like, his purpose somehow became to take over the entire world, and now that he did, his purpose is done. And so he sort of explodes because he has nothing left for him to do. Or, and I was talking to Mike about this before we started recording, that it might just be that the equation has been balanced, and because of that, it's over too. I'm just not sure. I mean, whatever it is, like, it was Neo's action that caused Smith to end. I'm just not sure. Maybe it's open that you're supposed to take from it whatever you want to take from it. Well, it's it's because Neo dies, it's the virus thing turned on its head, right? So because Smith is doing this thing where he then he becomes everything that he consumes, once he becomes Neo and once Neo dies, Smith dies, right? Because their fates are then interlinked when Neo allows Smith to overtake his body. So Neo in the material world, once he becomes Smith, he dies in the material world, so Smith dies in the world of the Matrix, Basically, what's happening is it's the the virus flipping back onto itself. The fact that all these Smiths are connected and all the same thing, when one dies, they all die. And when Smith becomes Neo and Neo dies, Smith dies, right? So he's, he's using his ability to influence both worlds at the same time. So that's why Smith gets... Why he says, oh no, you tricked me or whatever, right? Because, oh, because Neo okay. dies, thus all the Smiths die. In the real In world. In the real world. Okay. But Neo is one of the Smiths, and the Smiths are all connected because it's all a virus, so it's as though Neo is giving him the death virus by oh. becoming one with him. Their fates are now linked. Therefore, when Neo dies, the Smiths all die. Okay. And that, again, is definitely a nod to Christianity, which is like, Jesus gives his life to destroy evil. When Jesus dies, the sins of mankind are forgiven, and thus the devil loses his power over mankind, right? Like, the devil does not want Jesus to be crucified 
because that screws the devil over, right? It gives mankind a new relationship with God and a new forgiveness. So it's the same thing. It's like the death of Neo is what destroys the agent of evil within the world of the Matrix. So then they reboot the Matrix, and there's suddenly a world where the Oracle and Sati and Seraph and Architect and the glitch cat from the first movie, which is apparently the same exact cat that they use the same cat in another movie, which is kind of crazy, the Deja Vu cat, they're all together in this world. And there's a sunrise, and there's peace, and who knows how long that peace will last. I guess that peace will probably last until there is a fourth movie, if and when that happens. Right, yeah, this is the the new reality until the second coming. So this is like the, if you want to look at it from the, if you want to take the literal reading of the book of Revelation, this is the kingdom of God being realized. The idea basically at the end of Revelation is that once all the wicked have been punished and all the righteous have been saved, then there's a new everlasting kingdom of nothing but happiness and fulfillment forever. You can look at it that way, or you can look at it from the... Amen. Yeah, or from the literal way of, like, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, the Jews dispersed, but then a new world order came about a few hundred years later when Constantine converted to Christianity, and then Christianity became the new reality of the world and a new sort of social contract was was built. But either way, in both contexts, you have the notion of awaiting the Redeemer, right, to come and change everything. So that's what's going on when she says, do you think we'll see Neo again, right? She's like, probably, <laughs> because basically everything is, is going to get screwed up again. That is the natural order of things, right? No matter how closely or how much better you make the system, the system's still going to have flaws. Maybe they will take longer to get there, but they will arise, and then you will need the one to come in and clean up the mess and start all over again. And so when they, when they're talking, when the Oracle and the Architect are talking at the end that those who want to be free will be freed, where are they getting placed? Just in Zion? Or just some other, like we were talking about a while ago, just some other, some other place that we just may, we might not know about? Yeah, I would assume so. And again, this is the Roman, the Pax Romana again, right? This is like one of the, the, the deals that the Romans make is to say basically like, leave Jerusalem and we won't kill you, but that's the deal. And so, yeah, I think it's basically the idea is that the governing power has agreed to concede some kind of a power in the interest of a longer and more stabilized peace. Well now, ain't this a surprise? You played a very dangerous game. Change always is. Just how long do you think this peace is going to last? As long as it can. (laughs) What about the others? What others? The ones that want out. Obviously, they will be freed. I have your word. What do you think I am? human basically what they realize is the thing that went wrong with the six matrix was slavery (laughs) and like you know they're giving people the option to not be slaves and presumably giving people the option to be slaves as well because you know the fact is like in some way cypher had the right to be a slave if that's what he wanted to do slavery is is a matter of of having the the option of one or the other it's not having the option that, that, that becomes the problem. And I think that's basically what we're meant to understand as kind of the new world order, right? Everybody gets the option of being like, do you want to live in this like weird underground rave scene? Or like, do you like this kind of normal world where like you, you know, go and have a job and what would you rather have? 
that's my understanding of, of why the architect makes that promise to the Oracle. And that presumably that will lead to a much more successful seventh round of the Matrix. Did you notice, I, I tried to look, I saw this before I watched the scene, but apparently the bench that the Oracle is sitting on is dedicated to the memory of Thomas Anderson. <laughs> I've watched that scene so many times and I've never noticed that one. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I, I try and pay really close attention that. to that scene and like I've never seen that. That's awesome. Now I want to go donate a bench at a park for Thomas Anderson. So I want to donate know. every every bench to every park for Thomas Anderson. It's like all over the country, just freak people out. So I have some scattered trivia about the movie. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this scene or sort of the end of the movie? Or are you ready for some weirdo random I'm facts about things? I'm ready for some weirdo random facts about things. Yeah, let's, Mike? let's do it. All right. The movie opened at exactly the same moment in every major city around the world on November 5th. So 6 a.m. in Los Angeles, 9 a.m. in New York, 2 p.m. in London, 5 p.m. in Moscow, 11 p.m. in Tokyo, 1 a.m. in Sydney, and in over 50 other countries worldwide. I guess that's like, hey, we are all one in this journey of this thing called life. This is something that kind of bothers me a little bit because I feel like this was written on IMDb as a negative, but you think about like what else he had to do for this, and it's like, well, yeah. Keanu made $15 million for the film, which breaks down to $400,000 per minute of screen time. But also, I mean, he gave up like two or three years of his life for these two movies and like went through rigorous martial arts training and all this. So I mean, like, I'm okay with him getting paid that. In the subway, when they chase the train man through the subway, there's all these product placement billboards, including one for Tasty Wheat, which is great. But apparently (laughs) when they were filming, those were all added in post-production. They were originally posters for the movie Burly Men, starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, and Hugo Weaving, which I think, if we remember, was how Reloaded was shipped to theaters like under the guise of like anonymity That's great. or like the marketing posters or whatever it was under burly men <laughs> i love it. it reminds me of dangerous um, men which is yes. a bizarre movie mm-hmm. which is a great movie gloria foster who was the original oracle and mary alice who replaced her had played sisters in a long-running broadway play and so after gloria foster died somebody had the idea that hey they played sisters in that like they could she could do like, she could be an impression of her. And I think as awkward as it sort of has to be just because they changed actresses, like, I think it works pretty well. Yeah, I yeah, it's not too jarring. It's it, And, you know, that it, it, they work it into the script, and I totally buy it. Yeah, I really like that idea about the character that she needed to sort of change her identity, right? Like, she's in hiding. Like, she's been doing dangerous things. And, yeah, I thought that that was a very clever solution to that problem there and it's interesting that they got someone so close to that actress that probably knew her mannerisms or whatever and speaking of the oracle when neo visits her in this movie in her apartment i was going to bring this up the jazz standard yep. i'm beginning see to light. see the yeah. light is playing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and in the first movie the of uh, the original oracle is listening to a different version of that same yeah. song <laughs> i know i meant to bring it up in the first movie i don't know if i did in our first podcast i meant to bring it up in this movie because i remember seeing that scene again in the kitchen and being like all right the song and then i totally like whenever we were talking about that scene did not bring it up again but yes that's one of those subtle things that I did notice, which is a fantastic music cue. It's really funny. And I think it's that it's like the only song she listens to is... Uh... <laughs> different versions of that. Different versions. Yes, like a it. playlist on her iPod of like, you know, 40 different versions of that song. Bossa Nova version. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sure. <laughs> 
speaking of music, two things about the soundtrack, which I listened to ad nauseum 10, 15 years ago when they came out. Like, just because they're mostly <laughs> instrumental. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What I never really knew, like, I guess I could have Googled, but there's the one song yeah. where they're approaching Machine City. There's a song called Saw Bitch Workhorse. Yeah, I love it. My favorite song. And I was like, I don't know what, because the, they're all basically, you know, like Burly Brawl, because again, Burly Men, whatever, Burly Brawl is like when he's fighting the Agent Smiths and Reloaded, but here it's Saw Bitch Workhorse. And that doesn't make sense, but apparently a lot of these songs for the score of the first film and also this song, and maybe for Reloaded, were anagrams of either The Matrix or Wachowski Brothers. So Wachowski Brothers, all jumbled up, becomes Savage Workers. Ah, interesting. Which is literally a relic of an, an older time when they were still the Wachowski Brothers, yes. not just the Wachowski. the Wachowski sisters, depending on um, yes. how, you, how you credit it. So the other thing, this is the, the big, meaty trivia, is that the song that plays in the final battle that I think also plays over the closing credits is called Neodamarung, which is derived from Goddardamarung, which means Twilight of the Gods, mm-hmm. which is from Richard Wagner's opera Der Ring de Nibelungen, the, the ring. The which ring is cycle. based on Norse mythology, which told the story of the Ragnarok, a final fatal battle that destroyed the home of the gods and the gods themselves forever, which is exactly what happens here. And even though they knew what would happen, the gods fought for the survival of mankind. So that's cool. But what's even cooler, I guess, is that Don Davis, the composer, the guy who's, you know, did all the the score, the orchestral stuff for all these movies, thought it would be wasteful to bring in a choir just to ooh and ah for that song. So the Wachowskis found these lyrics from, I'm going to say this word wrong, Upanishads, U-P-A-N-I-S-A-D-S. Upanishads. Which is the Upanishads. Upanishads. Upanishads, which is Asatoma Sat Gamaya, like that whole thing, which means lead me from the unreal to the real, lead me from the darkness to the light, lead me from the temporary to the eternal. So even like when they're being somewhat overt about, hey, here's like what the metaphor of what's going on. They're like, we're still going to put it in another language, take it from some really old text, and sort of it's it's just cool. I like I like their multi-layered everything. Yeah, that moment is extremely operatic as well, you know. So like even if you don't understand what you're hearing per se, like you know that there's a relevance kind of like to the overall grandiose spectacle of it all too. So it's great that they're just they're still sneaking little things in here and there where they can and it, it fits on academic level but it also just works on an entertainment level as well is this the only movie that doesn't end with a rage against the machine song yeah yeah okay that's why it's a bad movie because it doesn't end with rage <laughs> my last little bit of trivia is that the brand of cigarettes the oracle smokes is double destiny everybody's favorite everybody's favorite cigarettes that's a weird name for a cigarette I've... honestly my final thought is that like, as sort of semi, semi-critical, I don't think we were too critical, but as semi-critical as we were for this movie, I'm sort of terrified for the next 10 years of Keanu Club, because like, <laughs> aside from Constantine and the Scanner Darkly and a few things here and there, it might be dark roads ahead until we get to John Wick, so this is sort of like the action week, in a way, that we had for Cage, where we had The Rock and Con Air and Face Off back to back to back, like we had four in the last eight or nine and three in a row here so i mean john thank you so much for joining us for all these and you you sort of we're at the tail end of like what we know to be great keanu and here it's sort of like a little bit of a toss-up from here on out until he's salvaged and saved and wicked. Well, I first of all, yeah, you're welcome. It's been it's been uh it's been it's been it's been a journey, but I'm also in line to I th- I think I'm doing Man of Tai Chi with you guys, right? And that's before John Wick. And that's a movie that I think n- neither of you guys have seen. 
Right? That's going to be a new one for you guys? I've not seen Mana Tai Chi. All right. No, me neither. And he's right. He that one's that, awesome, right? and you're going to love it, and we're going to be talking a, a great deal about how, how your minds are blown by that movie. Um, yeah, you'll be back for Constantine and a couple movies, and yeah. then Mana Tai Chi, was that 07 or 2012? Uh, I think or 2012. It's pretty recent. Yeah. Okay, and that's the one he directed? He directed it, yeah. yeah. It's, oh, it's, awesome. it's like the Keanuist movie you've ever seen in your life, but it's so good. <laughs> so 2013, which is crazy to me, because I don't think I'd ever heard of it. Yeah. It came out around the time of 47 Ronin, I think, and I got the them The same confused. year. It was like a well, I saw years 47 before. Ronin in theaters. Yeah. Oh. I never heard of Manitaichi. You're going to love it. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some bright spots between, between now and the days of John Wick. Luckily, I'll be pretty much on all of them, so... <laughs> whatever, whatever sucker is doing the other movies. Well, we've I'm got the Lake House, and we've got a Scanner Darkly, Lake House is okay. and we've Scanner got pretty good. the Day the Earth Stood Still, which is maybe going to be terrible. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm, but yes. I'm, I'm with you, Joey. I'm a little worried. Not worried, but it's just like, <laughs> it's tough when we're on the edge of the unknown here. Like, as much as I'm familiar with Keanu, I am not familiar with like this next decade or so what's coming like, <laughs> uh, you know, and we have so have a couple many of weird documentaries spots, coming you know. up too <laughs> well, but it's crazy like it's okay. everything he's done up till now seems to be what people refer to you know what I'm saying like it's almost as if he just sort of retreats for a little bit here and there and pops up to remind you that yeah I'm still around but he doesn't really go full speed again for a while not like you said until kind of like John Wick so yeah, he, it'll be yeah we're thinking he's back yeah. I'm well, back. good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, John, and thank you for all of your religious teachings over these four episodes. So you've been very thoughtful and intelligent and well spoken about these, and they're they're kind of, they kind of stand apart from the rest of them. I mean, like Little Buddha, we were just like, "What is this movie?" Here, it was just like, "All right, let's just get into it." Like we were all sort of on the same page, and so these are it's like a very special episode of Keanu Club where just these four, you know, it's all about what religion means in the Matrix, which is pretty cool so for all things keanu club including our other matrix episodes and little buddha and john was also on the devil's advocate and we also did constantine for all his movies you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub you can hear all the things that we've talked about already you can see some stuff that's coming up in the future you can read reviews of early cage movies lots of fun free things to do with those two places i'm joey lewandowski and i'm mike manzi and that was john brooks and we'll see you next time on keanu club What's it gonna be, Merv? 